Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God has to say. God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their, in their ears. Jacob hid them under the, the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak Below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bekuth. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Paden Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob no longer. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offsprings after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place there where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So everyone here probably knows that a good story ought to end with these words. And they lived happily ever Oh, y'all know this. Okay, so a good story ends with, and they lived happily ever after. Now, even if you're a critic and even if you're cynical, the reality of it is you still want good stories to end that way. They lived happily ever after. That's how a good stories are supposed to end. No matter the difficulties, no matter the challenges and struggles a character might have faced in the midst of the story, we long for them to overcome. We long for them to succeed, and we long for them to sort of resolve all the conflict so that we can relax and say, and they lived happily ever after. In the previous sermons that I've been preaching, I, 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 we have dealt with um, the earlier days of Jacob's life, and I, I made the point to recognize that the Bible does not sanitize the stories of those that it records their, their life story, and it certainly does not sanitize the story of Jacob. And we talked a lot about how dysfunctional Jacob's family, of his, his, his original family was. 
We, we talked about how Scripture talks about how dysfunctional Jacob was and how so many of his relationships, whether it was his, with his, his mom and his dad, his brother, his uncle, his, his uncle's children, those relationships were, um, were the dynamic of them was about scheming and cheating. And, and there, there have been so many moments when we've talked about Jacob where we've, we've had to say, here's the great glorious things that God is doing, and yet Jacob, the main character in the midst of that story, not so impressive. And yet God chose Jacob, not because Jacob was this great character that's worthy of our emulation. God chose Jacob because of God's grace in choosing Jacob. When we come to the end of Jacob's life, there is something that we can celebrate, but there will be other things that we will mourn. Chapter 34, the, pre the previous chapter to what we just read, is one of the saddest most despicable, hard-to-read chapters in all of Genesis and maybe the entirety of the Scriptures. It is an ugly testimony, and it's hard to find anything good to say about it. In fact, if you do a lot of reading, like commentaries and those sort of things, there are some commentators that just skip the chapter because it's such a difficult chapter to discuss. It's not a very good moment in Jacob's life. And it's no consequence that the name of God is not referenced a single time in chapter 34. Chapter 34 is just a testimony of the, the worldly events of the life of Jacob and his family. You may remember as Jacob left Laban's home, he was, he was commanded to come back to Bethel. But when he, after he meets with Esau, he doesn't go to Bethel. He goes near the city of Shechem. It's a pagan city. And there may be some reasons, some practical reasons why he did that, but they would prove to be disastrous to him. Um, his daughter would be raped by one of the leader's sons there in Shechem. In response, out of anger, Jacob's sons would murder. They would massacre all the men and boys in Shechem. And through all of this turmoil and through all of this brokenness, the only really reference to Jacob's participation is he's not leading his family. He's not talking about what's going on. He's just worried about all, what trouble those events are going to cause him personally. Not a high moment in Jacob's life. About all you can say about Jacob in chapter 24 is that, I mean, 34 is that he's just a little bit more than a, 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 a passive observer of what's happening. However, in chapter 35, its contrast to 34 quite dramatic. We witness a high moment in the life of Jacob. Where in 34 God is not mentioned, in chapter 35 God is everywhere. Uh, the name of God appears 11 times in this chapter. And it's also present 11 more times in the names of Israel and Bethel and El Bethel and another time in, in the name of El Shaddai. Jacob's an old man in this chapter, but God is still working in his life. Isn't that a good word of grace, dear friends? Listen, if you're not old, you probably are planning on being old. Amen? And I want God to still be moving in my life when my whatever hair I've got left is gray and gone. 
Jacob would live another 30 or 40 years, and in comparison to his early years, filled with many troubles, most of which were of his own making, these years, from a spiritual perspective, will be some of the best days of Jacob's life. Old age can be seen as a time or a season in your life to slow down and to rest. That very much is the the, 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 the messaging that we receive today from our, from our culture, part of the blessing of advanced years of life is that we, 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 we have this opportunity to have a significant time in our life when we're set free from work and we're able to do retirement years and we're presented that as the ultimate goal as to rest, to relax, to sort of ease into it and, and give up on the labors of our earlier days. More dangerously, old age can also be seen as a time to coast, particularly spiritually, relying on past efforts and decisions, but not and no longer growing in the Lord and no longer serving the Lord. Friends, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. If the Lord gives you 30 years or 300 years, He is not giving you a single year to coast. God wants you serving Him with every breath that you have. Don't go to the grave relaxing. Go to the grave serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Somebody say amen. Okay, maybe when I get done preaching, you can say amen like you believe it, all right? From this passage, I want us to see these things out of the life of Jacob. And I want us to see how even in his old age, Jacob was ready to respond to God's leadership. He was intentional about holiness and that he was defined by God's word. Now, I'm not saying Jacob uh, did this in his own effort. I'm saying God prompted him in this moment and this is the result out of Jacob's life. So when 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 we go through this passage today, these are the commands that we ought to be ready to obey God, be intentional about holiness and be defined by God's word. Now, those things should be true about you no matter how old you are. But certainly as you grow in the Lord and grow in advanced years, they ought to be more and more true about you. So let's begin with being ready to obey God. I see that in verse 1. So look with me back in your scriptures. In verse 1, chapter 35, And God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Now the reason why God had to say that to Jacob is because he wasn't living in Bethel. He was living near Shechem, and that was not where he was supposed to be. And in the midst of living in Shechem, pursuing worldly things, God speaks to Jacob. And friends, when God speaks to you, it does some things in your life. It does some things in your life. And when God speaks to you, the very first thing it does is it changes your attention. When God speaks, it changes your attention. After making peace with Esau, Jacob settled his family near the pagan city of Shechem. And he may have had some practical reasons for why he did this. It was further away from Esau, so maybe he thought this would help the relationship with his brother, not threaten his brother, and maybe not be threatened by his brother. It was near city resources. He wanted maybe to be near the, 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 the wealth and the resources of being near a, 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 a city with its people. 
And it seems that Jacob had found favor with the rulers of the city. In fact, when you read chapter 34 and, and, and their response to, his, to the defilement of his daughter, there's a, there's a recognition that, um, that, they, that they actually desired a right relationship, a good relationship with Jacob and his family and, and tried to do right. And, and so it seems that he had found favor with the leaders there in the city. But it would prove disastrous. Jacob's daughter, likely unaware of the dangers of the city that the city posed, would be raped by the king's son. In anger, Jacob's son would murder all the males in the city, and they would use the name of God to lure the men into their, to their deaths. Later in life, Jacob would curse Simeon and Levi for their behavior. And he says, for the use of the weapons of violence, but he would do that in his last days, not in the days that he lived near Shechem. Throughout these events, Jacob is not offering any leadership to his family. His only concern seems to be the trouble that, it might, that his son's actions might bring to him personally. And so in the midst of just chasing after worldly things, in the midst of having his attention on worldly pursuits, God speaks to Jacob and he says, Jacob, Brother, you need to move, you need to move to Jekyll, I mean to Bethel, and you need to stay there. Friends, when God commanded Jacob to return home, he told him to return to Bethel. So when God told uh, Jacob when he was at Laban's house to come home, he told him, don't go to Shechem. No, he said, you return home to Bethel. In chapter 31, verse 13, he says, I am the God of Bethel, where you, where, where, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Jacob did erect an altar testifying to his faith in God near Shechem. But he did not move to Bethel. Wearsby rightly observed, it's obvious that Jacob wasn't in a hurry to obey God and return to Bethel. We commend him for erecting an altar and giving public witness of his faith in the Lord, but sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. When God spoke the word arise in verse 1, he is drawing Jacob's attention away from the things of the world. Jacob had been looking to what the world could offer. But God wanted him to look to him alone. Jacob had been worried about his standing with the world. How are the actions of my sons going to affect my relationship with the leaders and the movers and the shakers? But God wanted Jacob to be concerned about his relationship with God. Jacob had been looking for the worldly ease and comfort that could be provided by living near a city. But God wanted Jacob to know the peace that only comes from a right relationship with him. Friends, when God speaks, that very speaking into your life draws your attention away from the world and to God alone. God wants your attention, dear friends. And he will not share it with anything else. When God speaks, it, it, it changes our attention. And when God speaks, it also exposes our sin. So God commanded Jacob to go up from Bethel and to dwell there. Now, this is not new. This isn't, when Jacob heard this, he didn't go, oh, well, that's a great idea. God, I believe I'll do that. 
Now, this was a recognition that Jacob had not obeyed God's original command. It's a recognition that where Jacob is living is not where he's supposed to be. The command has two parts. Go to Bethel and stay, dwell, live in Bethel. Jacob was not dwelling where God had commanded him to dwell. Now listen, in Bethel, God would speak a powerful, wonderful word to reaffirm to Jacob the covenant that he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and had made to Jacob already. But before hearing these words, Jacob needed to obey the first words God had spoken to him. So often, dear friends, we desire for God to speak to us. I, as a pastor, I cannot tell you how many times I've had those conversations, prayed those prayers for people, where people said, oh, I just wish God would speak to me, lead me. I want to know where God wants me to be. That's the right thing to ask. It's the right thing to desire. It's the right thing to pursue. But listen to me carefully, friends. You cannot expect God to give you a new word until you've obeyed his first word. You can't expect God to speak to you while you're not living and dwelling in Bethel. God wanted to speak a fresh anointing, a fresh word to, to Jacob. He wanted to reaffirm the covenant that he had made to him. But before he could hear those words, he had to get up from Shechem, move his family to Bethel, and stay there. Friends, God will not ignore your sin, and God will not overlook your sin. It is right to desire that God would speak anew into our lives, but when he does, he first deals with the sin that is in our life. You cannot enjoy the blessings of God while living in sin against God. Arise, Jacob. Move, Jacob. Dwell where you're supposed to be dwelling, Jacob. Dear friends, I want God to move in your life. I want God to radically, joyfully, wonderfully move in your life. And when he speaks, he'll draw your attention away from the worldly things to him. And when he speaks, he will also confront the sin in your life. And when God confronts the sin in your life, this demands a response. I mean, you can't hear from God and go, oh, thanks, but no thanks. It demands a response. Verses 2 and 3 may seem like just a recounting of the events, but there's something I think much more significant in these verses. Look what, what the Bible says. God says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Verse two. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the Lord who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. I mean, this is a very simplistic and obvious observation, but it's important for us to see. God spoke. Jacob responded with obedience. God spoke. Jacob responded with obedience. Much can be said about Jacob's disobedience and the consequences that his family had endured because of it. But there can be, and there, there also must be, much rejoicing that when God confronted him in his sin, he responded with obedience. Here's the simple truth this morning. You cannot do, listen to me carefully on this one. You cannot do anything about yesterday. 
Did you hear me? I mean, you can't do anything about yesterday. I don't know what your story includes. It may include all kinds of sinful disaster. It may include all kinds of disobedience. It may include all kinds of failure yesterday. I hate that for you. I will grieve with that about you for you. But you cannot do anything about it. It now is your story. You cannot do anything about yesterday, but you have an opportunity today to respond to God anew. Somebody say amen. Your story may be like Jacob in that you have not obeyed God. You've gone where you should not have gone. You invested in worldly things. You pursued worldly pleasures. You chased after man's approval and you ignored God's commands. And the reality is sometimes Satan uses these things to accuse you and demoralize you. Here's what Satan's lies are. They're the same old lies he's been using since the, uh, since the fall. You've gone too far. You've gone too far. Oh, the great grace of God is wonderful, but not for you because you've gone too far. That's a lie, friends. Or you've been too long disobedient. It's too long. Well, maybe if you had repented last year or six months ago or five years ago, but it's been way too long. You've been way too long disobedient. You have squandered the opportunity. That's a lie, friends. You're too messed up. Satan will go, yeah. But the consequences of your sin have just so wrecked you and messed you up. You're too messed up. That's a lie, friends. I want you to notice something in this passage. The only history that God reminds Jacob of is how he has provided for Jacob in the past. Oh, that's an act of grace, isn't it? God doesn't start off by saying, Jacob, you're not in Bethel. And you should have moved to Bethel, first of all, when you came back. And he doesn't he didn't get on Jacob about, you know, from the very beginning, Jacob, you've been a liar and cheater. Really, you've been a problem person from the very beginning. God doesn't remind Jacob of any of that. You know what God reminds him of? I've been the God who has provided for you at every moment of your life. He says in verse 1, make an altar to the God who has appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Friends, you cannot do anything about yesterday, but you have an opportunity today to obey the word of God. Jacob responded to God's word with obedience. When God speaks, you must choose to obey. Either you must choose to either obey or remain in your sin. Oh, dear God, dear friends. Oh, dear friends. Would you be ready to obey God when he speaks into your life? Now, secondly, be intentional about holiness. Notice what Jacob does in verse 2. He says, we got to get ready to meet God. And so in verse 2, he, he gives an instruction to his whole household, and he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who has answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And verse 4 says, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the tear of the tree that was near Shechem. It's a sad testimony that Jacob, great Jacob, and his household had become so comfortable with sin that this had to even be said. But 
That's not unusual, is it? And I just want to share with you two things about being intentional about holiness. The first is, if you're going to be intentional about holiness, it starts with putting away sinful distractions. The first thing that Jacob did was to give instruction that all of the household were to put away the foreign gods that were among them. Now, that's a sad testimony, isn't it? Good friends, that's a sad testimony. Oh, I wish it were true that Jacob didn't have to give this instruction, but I wish it was true I didn't have to give this instruction to us as well. But it's the reality of our sinful nature that we're drawn to wickedness, we're drawn to sinfulness, and if we're not careful, we'll invite those things into our own homes. More than any other person, Jacob had seen with his own eyes the power and the might of the living God, and yet as the years gave way, he put greater distance between him and God. He became more comfortable with worldliness. He became more accepting of sin. Did you hear it? They had to take out the earrings, testimonies to their service to a pagan god. They're walking around with a public display. They become accommodating to the things that God hated. And, and, and more and more of the world's idols found a place amongst the household of Jacob. Now here's the truth. When you live close to the world, you will eventually worship what the world worships. Do you hear me? When you live close to the world, you will eventually worship what the world worships. It's interesting that God did not specifically command that Jacob uh, purify himself and put away the foreign gods. Jacob knew this intuitively. You know why? Because he knew those things should have never been in his household to begin with. Friends, moving toward the presence of God requires the abandonment of the idols of this world. So the question for us is, have you, have you moved away from God? Have you become comfortable with worldliness? Have you become accepting of sin in your own household? Have you become accommodating to things in your household that you know that God hates? The idols of this world will find a place in your life unless you actively and intentionally put them away. Friends, if there are things in your life today that you know would be shameful in the presence of God, then they should not remain in your life another moment. Put them away, throw them away. Jacob knows that as he moves toward Bethel, as he moves toward the presence of God, there are some things in his life that cannot stay. Put away the sinful distractions. And secondly, pursue personal holiness. Now, Jacob also commanded that his family purify themselves and change their clothes. And it's true that we cannot make ourselves clean and pure before God through our own efforts. So that's not what Jacob is doing here. He's not saying if we change our clothes, then we're right before God. But I think he is recognizing that they each individually need to actively pursue personal holiness. Understand this distinction. Pursuing personal holiness is not about being perfect before God. This is not a call to legalism. Pursuing personal holiness is about being humble before God. Legalism cannot and will not save you, and it cannot and it will not 
honor God. So if you, if you attempt to be perfect and then you stand before God and you say, God, aren't you so proud of me because I don't have any sin in my life? It is, it is not a gift to the Lord. It does not honor God. And it will actually condemn you, not save you. But pursuing personal holiness is a testimony to a life submitted to God and an offering that both honors God and glorifies God. In other words, it's saying, listen, God demands this in my life, and as a submission before the holiness of God, I'm going to pursue personal holiness. It's a recognition that God is holy and perfect, and so you want to do all you can to, to honor his name and to testify to that in your own life. A testimony of submission in choosing God's righteousness over personal desire and pleasure. An offering in giving your life to God rather than living for yourself. Personal holiness is not something that, that, just, that you just happen into. To walk holy before the Lord requires that you pursue personal holiness. you got to throw away the foreign gods. you got to take out the things out of your life that have identified you with a pagan God, not the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you got to change your clothes. you got to walk different. you got to talk different. you got to live different, not as a way to prove yourself to God, but as a way to humble yourself before God. Be intentional about holiness. One other thing. Be defined by God's word. The best part is in verse 9, God speaks anew to Jacob. Now, these are not new words. In fact, the interesting thing about this passage is naming, renaming Jacob Israel. God had already spoken that to him. And uh, the, the covenant that God artic articulates here, nothing new here. But you know, the reality of it is when you've walked a far distance, a guilty distance from God, and you return back to the Lord, it's good to hear those words again, isn't it? Because Jacob identifies with worldly things, but Israel identifies with the power of God. The wealth of Jacob identifies with the things that he can achieve, but the covenant of God to prosper him and to get, make a nation out of him and give him the land and many people and to bless all the families to the earth, that can only be accomplished by God himself. Now, just a couple of things here. When God speaks to Jacob, I want you to notice something that he says right there in verse 11. God declares not the covenant, but God declares his power. Be defined by God's word first by his power. So when God spoke to reaffirm his covenant with Jacob, he begins with a word not about Jacob, but about himself. Look at verse 11. It says, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, the name that God uses for himself in this, in this moment is a name that we've heard before. It's the name El Shaddai. The first time it was used was by God himself when he appeared before Abraham, when Abraham was 99 years old. And God declared, I am El Shaddai. I am the God who is able to make you a father of many nations, even though at that moment Abraham had no children. In chapter 28, Isaac uses the name when blessing Jacob before he leaves for his uncle's house because he has come to know the power of God, even to work against his own efforts to try to thwart the work of God. At that moment, Isaac recognizes that God is in control, God is providing for his covenant, and he uses the name El Shaddai. Jacob would be who God said he would be have what God said he would have and accomplish what God promised that he would accomplish, not because of what Jacob did and not because of who Jacob was, 
but because of who God is. Friends, don't rush past these words. I am God Almighty. He's still God Almighty. Amen? When God confronts you in your sin, He is God Almighty who knows every thought and every action. When you respond in obedience, He is God Almighty who is able to to take your feeble response of obedience and do great and mighty things with it. When you pursue holiness, He is God Almighty who receives that not not as an act of works that earns your salvation, but as an act of worship to a holy and righteous God. When you trust in the promises of God, He is God Almighty who fulfills perfectly His promise. Every last one, none will be forgotten, none will be forsaken, for He is faithful and true. Oh, dear friends, those of you in this room who have given your life to Jesus and in saving faith, He is God Almighty who took you in your sin, redeemed you by the blood of Jesus, and made you holy and righteous before God for all of eternity. He accomplishes his will through his power. You know why? Because he's El Shaddai, God Almighty. Does Jacob deserve any of this? No. But God is the God Almighty who accomplishes his will, even through people like Jacob. There's something else I want you to see here, and that is that we, we are defined by God's word, first by his power, and then secondly by his, according to his promises. So in verses 11 and 12, God reaffirmed again to Jacob his covenant. Now, God had first spoken this covenant to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. God had then reaffirmed that to Isaac and then to Jacob and now again to Jacob. The encouraging grace that is found here is that God's promises are secured, not in our power, but in the eternal power of God. Oh, friends, that's a good word. The fulfillment of God's promises, the keeping of God's word is not secured by what you and I can do. Those things are secured by the power of God and what he will do. Was Jacob worthy of these blessings? And the answer to that is no. Had Jacob lived up to his new name of Israel? And the answer to that is no. In fact, the testimony of Scripture is he's not going by his new name. Had Jacob fully trusted in God? The answer to that is no. By living near Shechem, he testifies he's still trying to do things in his own might, in his own power. Had Jacob failed miserably throughout his life? And the answer to that is yes. But here is the amazing grace that though Jacob was unworthy, God was still a promise keeper in his life. Are you worthy to receive the blessings of God? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Have you lived up to the standards of God's holiness? The truth is many of you have moved closer to Shechem than you have Bethel, and the answer is no. Have you perfectly walked in faith and trusted in God for all things? No. Have you failed miserably? Yes. But is God faithful? 
Yes. Is God faithful? Yes. Is God able to complete the good work that he began in you? Yes. Will God keep every last promise he has made according to his power and grace? And the answer to that is absolutely, completely, totally yes. I began this morning by recognizing that some of you began your walk with the Lord with great zeal and passion. Can you remember those days? It may be that when you came to know Jesus, that you were convinced that by your effort, you were going to bring everybody you had ever met to the name of Jesus and get saved. And you probably cannot put your finger on it, but you're not as passionate today as you once were. And here's the danger. Listen to me, friends. This is the danger. We'll excuse that lack of passion by saying, well, I'm more mature now. Being mature in, in, in the grace of God does not mean we're less passionate for Jesus. Dear friends, that cannot be. Wouldn't it be that the more you know of God, the closer you walk with the Lord, the more passionate you become for Jesus? Should it not be that our eldest that are most mature in the faith are the most passionate for Jesus? Yes. What happened? What happened to your passion? What happened to your willingness to sacrifice? What happened to your willingness to do whatever it took for the glory of God? How have you become so comfortable with being lukewarm for Jesus. My guess is it didn't happen overnight. Little by little, as the concerns of work and family, career, hobbies, and other things grew, slowly but surely you grew less passionate for Jesus. You went through Bethel, but you moved near Shechem. You camped in Bethel, but you built a house near Shechem. And like Jacob, many of you are sensing God today speaking to you. Praise God for that. Speaking to you about where your attention has been focused. Speaking to you about where you are and why you, why you are not where God wants you to be. Speaking to you about sin that you need to repent of and confess. Speaking to you about sinful distractions and things in your life that you need to put away and throw away. When God spoke to Jacob, he responded in obedience. And as a result of that, experienced the wonderful grace of God. In the New Testament, James speaks of it this way in chapter 4. James writes, draw near to God. There's an assumption in this passage that we have drawn away from the Lord. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, heart, your hearts, you double-minded. Like Jacob throwing away the things of pagan idols, putting on new clothes. 
Friends, when we draw near to God, he draws near to us and accomplishes his word in us through his power. That is a wonderful, glorious truth. Yesterday is gone. But today you have an opportunity to return to the Lord in obedience. He is speaking. He is speaking. The question is, how will you respond? For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.